Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. All right, let's go to the Word this morning. Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. I love preaching at Christmas time. And uh, I was just telling Laura, Pastor Laura asked me, she said, you know what you're going to preach on? Because sometimes I don't until worship. Uh, she said, you know what you're going to preach on? I said, I got, I got a pretty good idea. But here's the thing. I've, this is my 19th Christmas as pastor of Heartland. So you know, you gotta, you're dealing with the same story to get some new material. And so I always come before the Lord and just ask him to give me a new perspective on this, this story that has so many facets to it. And uh, the Lord's been speaking to me about something this last week that I want to share with you. So Matthew chapter 2, let's look at verse 1, and we're going to look at the story of the Magi. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, the King James Version refers to these as wise men, and they were wise, especially according to their culture. But what made them wise was not their learning. What made them wise was their hunger. Scripture is very clear. James says the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. It's that pure heart in our pursuit that makes us wise. There are a lot of very learned people who aren't so wise and a lot of people who don't have the degrees who are. Biblical wisdom is a different thing. And so with these magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Now a little backstory, the reason he was disturbed, uh, of course he was disturbed because these magi were Persian kingmakers. They were part of the Magi that Daniel had at one time been a part of. These were Medo-Persian wise men. They were astrologers. They were, they, they were the learned people of their, their time. They would be the ones that would counsel the kings. And in fact, in Persia, you were not able to become a king without their blessing. And so they were the king makers. Their, their endorsement of your your, uh, your appointment was the only way to enter into being a king. And there had been some battles between these Persians and Herod previously. Now Herod was a subservient king. He was what was known as a vassal king uh, in these times. And it wasn't uncommon throughout history. You would have emperors. Caesar was an emperor or he was known as a king of kings. And then he would appoint lesser kings or vassal kings or servant kings who he would delegate portions of his kingdom to and then they would then run it for him. Now they had vast authority as long as they kept a lid on things and they would send tributes to the king of kings, then they were able to pretty much do what they wanted. And Herod, uh, who was not really a Jew, he was from the Hasmonean dynasty, he came to power uh, by appealing to Caesar, and Caesar gave him the right to rule. And through this lens, this, this is really an important concept for you and I to understand what the Bible is talking about when we talk about the kingdom. Uh, in Luke chapter 9, I believe it is, it says there was a nobleman who went to the king to receive for himself a kingdom. 
It's not saying that he was receiving physical land. He was receiving the right to rule over a patch of ground. He was receiving the right to rule or the endorsement of the emperor to go and in the emperor's name to conquer an area and to rule it for him. And so therefore he would have the backing of Rome. And that's exactly what Herod did. Herod, so when Jesus talked about the kingdom and he told that story to the Jews and he said there was a nobleman who went to receive for himself a kingdom, they knew exactly what he was talking about because that is exactly what Herod had done. Herod had gone to Caesar and appealed to him for the right to rule over Judea, this patch of, this, this, this rabble of people who had been a thorn in the side of Rome for quite some time. So uh, Herod was Jewish by faith, but a secular faith. It wasn't that he lived as a devout Jew, but he, his family had been a proselyte uh, into Judaism, and so they had converted, and he went before them and, and uh, asked uh, Herod, or Caesar rather, for the right to rule. And so he, Herod had ruled with an iron fist. Herod was an infamous guy. Really, I th- if I remember right, he, he ruled for about 30 years. And the first number of years of his rule was very peaceful. And he was a great blessing in, in one respect to the people of Judea. But his final years were a time of just brutality. Uh, And in light of this story, it was one of the most infamous stories in the history of Herod's rule because he ended up killing many of the children, all the boys under two years old in the area of Bethlehem about six miles south of Jerusalem. And so Herod was a brutal guy. Matter of fact, there was a saying during the time of Herod's rule that it's better off being Herod's pig than his son because you'll live longer. At least the pig would be fattened up. The son never knew when he was going to be killed. And Herod indeed did kill three of his own sons because he was so paranoid about somebody taking his place. And so he ruled with an iron fist. And so that's the backstory. So the Bible is the master of understatement. You ever think about that? So it says, and Herod was troubled. Yeah, yeah, he was. Because these foreign kingmakers show up, this entourage of wise men, of magi that come and they said, where is the king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. And Herod's thinking, hey guys, you're looking at him. And they said, we saw his, now some translations say we saw his star rise in the east. Uh, There's another way to translate that, which is the more modern translations translate it this way, and it's probably more accurate in keeping with the story, that we saw his star arise. Because these men were astrologers. They were people who who studied the stars. Now, in ancient times, astrology uh, isn't what we think of it today. It wasn't so much that they would study and try to predict the future, but they did believe that the the heavens spoke of divine intent. And even the Jewish people had that idea. Matter of fact, you can go into ancient synagogues and find the Zodiac in ancient synagogues. It's not because they had broken with Judaism and were now into star worship, but it was because it was part of their religion. Way back at the beginning, where God said he set the sun and the moon to rule the day and night. And the times and seasons were ordered by the, the, the sun and the moon and the other stars. And so there was an understanding that you could navigate the seas by the stars. You could navigate the times. And so this breakup of times and seasons were uh, very closely associated with the 
you know, the planets and the stars and the moon and so forth. And these wise men understood that and they would study that. And something had happened. So here these wise men, these magi, they had, again, Daniel at one point had been part of the magi. And the word magi is where we get the word magician. But it's not that they were doing incantations as much as initially they were wise men and there was this history in Babylon and in Persia that they were the inheritors of this, this hidden wisdom. And some of that came out of the fall. There were, uh, there, there's a whole lot behind that. But Daniel became one of these magi at one time. And Daniel became the primary magi. He became the primary wise man, a counselor. He ended up being a counselor to three pagan kings. And Daniel navigated that well. As a prophet, he occupied a position as a wise man and counseled a king. And we need to have a vision for that, by the way. That prophecy is not just for the church. Any more than any of the gifts are just for the church. And Daniel understood that and functioned in these high-level places of influence through gifts from the Holy Spirit. And so Daniel had made a huge impact in the history of these magi. And most likely they had the writings of, that Daniel had made, some of which we probably don't have, but some of which we do have. And so they, they had these writings. There was an awareness that there was going to be a Jewish Messiah. And we don't know exactly what this star was, where it was whether it was a physical star that was moving. Now, obviously that when they, they understood, they discerned somehow. This is a fascinating thing to me. How was it that pagans understood the timing of Christ's birth when the scholars missed it. That should be a very uncomfortable question for you and I. And I would propose to you, it's because of what drove these magi. There was, there had awakened within their heart, probably because of the history and the influence of Daniel hundreds of years earlier. There was this understanding of the Most High God. And they knew that there was going to be a Jewish Messiah who would influence the world. And somehow their hearts had been awakened. And they saw, it says, we saw his star rise in the east. Whatever that means. Now some, some Bible scholars believe, because uh, in the Old Testament there are times that angels are referred to as stars. And in, in ancient culture they often thought, they looked into the heavens and they'd see these stars. And because that's in the heavens, they thought those were angels and, and the gods and all these things in ancient culture. And so it may have been that these, these pagan, hungry pagans, if you can call them that, they had poor theology but a hungry heart. And God was meeting them where they were at. It could have been an angel. We don't know. But they went to the most logical place. They went to Jerusalem because that's the seat of the throne for the Jewish people. And they get there and they ask Herod, where is the king of the Jews, this new one? Because we saw his star rise and so they timed it. This, and, and by the way, in, in ancient culture, often they, would, they, they thought the rising and falling of kings would be marked by signs in the heavens. And, and uh, so they're, they're grasping at things, but they got it right. God's meeting them where they're at. It's an amazing thing. 
Now this is not an endorsement of astrology by any means. But the scriptures do say in Joel that there will be signs in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Paul, in playing off of that concept in Romans chapter 1, and again I want to say it's in Romans chapter 10, he talks about the heavens themselves declaring the glory of God. In Romans chapter 10, he quotes a verse out of Psalm 19 where it says that the sun and the moon have been given voice to declare the glories of God. And there was this awareness that the creator of the universe was trying to communicate with these magi. To me, that is so fascinating and troubling because these ignorant pagans, and I, I don't, I'm not using those as derogatory phrase, I'm just saying they didn't know. They, they were grasping for knowledge they didn't understand. They were subject to the teachers of the law because when they come to Herod and they said, where is this king of the Jews? He's thinking you should be looking at him. What, what's going on? And he begins to question them and dig down and he's, he's playing poker face with them and saying, hey, I'd like to worship this one too. Why don't you, when you find him, let me know. And so Herod calls in the teachers of the law, the, the chief priest and the teachers of the law and questions them. And they said, well, he's gonna, he, they read to him, Mal, or Micah rather, and say, yeah, he'll be born in Bethlehem. So they go to the city of David, Jerusalem, but the teachers of the law say, no, it, it's gotta be dialed in better. It's gonna be the city of David his birthplace, Bethlehem. It's the city of David according to the angels. The human beings called Jerusalem the city of David because it was the place David produced. But the angels called Bethlehem the city of David because it was the place that produced him. And so he goes to, they go, they hear that, okay, it's in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was only about an eight hour, or eight mile rather, walk from Jerusalem. And so they load up again with Herod's blessing. And Herod says, hey, when you find him, come back and let me know. I'd like to worship him too. Now we know from the story what he was really going to do. But they load up this big entourage because they're carrying valuables. And they go this you know, several hour journey and they go to Bethlehem and it says the star led him there. Now, had it been a real star in the heavens as high as normal, it would, there's no way it could have led them to Bethlehem. It already led them to Jerusalem. It's in the vicinity. But something about this supernatural phenomena in the sky was leading them until it stopped over the place of Jesus. And they went in and they found the baby. It says they bowed before him and worshiped and opened their gifts to him. It's an amazing, amazing story. And these pagan kingmakers worshiped him as God. And, in, and essentially, they endorsed him as king. Because that was the question, where is this king, this king of the Jews, going to be born? Now that begs all kinds of questions that just really intrigue me and trouble me. Because you had the teachers of the law, those that knew. When they came looking for the baby... They could get only so far 
by the limited biblical knowledge they had from Daniel and this supernatural phenomena in the sky. They could only get so far and they needed to find someone who knew the word. Now that'll preach. You can only get so far through supernatural phenomena. You've got to root things in the word. If you really want to find him, you better know the word. But the flip side of that is the ones who knew the word didn't care enough. They knew where to find him from the word but didn't care enough to walk the eight miles to find him. That is a troubling, troubling thing to me. That the ignorant pagans, in other words, the people who didn't know and had false worship had enough hunger to find the real thing while the ones that had the real thing and the word didn't care enough to get up and find him. And we need to be so very careful as believers that in what we have found, we don't become so satisfied that we lose the hunger to be moved by the word. The word of God is to motivate us and move us and cause us to hunger after him. I mean, think about this. These, these men who had given their lives to studying the word, many of them would have whole books memorized as teachers of the law. Men who were, they had given their life in, it was the expression of God in that time in history, it was Judaism. They had the revelation. And when these men from the east come and show up and they knew something's going on here, and they ask, where is this one born king of the Jews? And these scholars would have understood. They're talking about the Messiah. Could they be right? Could it possibly be this is the real deal? And they, were, they knew right where to go and right where to lead them. And it was an eight-mile walk, but they weren't hungry enough to make the walk. They were too apathetic and content in what they did know to get up and take the effort to go. Meanwhile, these pagans had, had gone hundreds of miles over many weeks with an entourage at great sacrifice, made it to Jerusalem, listened to the scholars, and then took what they added to what they already knew, and they went out and they found him. Now, this, this definitely speaks to the fact that Jesus is not merely the Jewish Messiah. He is the Messiah for the world. That he's come that every nation and tongue would bow before him. And they were a precursor. They were the ones that would crown him king of all. But the troubling thing was that the people who were God's people at that time missed it. And what I'm telling you this morning is we, you and I, are not immune to that. There's something about knowledge that is so seductive that we think because we know, we already have. Oh, I can explain it to you. And we, we live in this theoretical relationship where we just talk theology. And we argue theology, but we lack the hunger to move into the real thing. And we've got to be so careful. Often, the people who are most opposed to what God is doing in the moment are those who know the word the best. 
Biblical knowledge is not enough to cause you to find the Lord. And I'm not talking, I'm not talking about in the, the, the sense of salvation, okay? Most of us this morning have already found him. I'm talking about finding him again and again and again. In Isaiah 66, the last book or the last chapter of, of Isaiah, there's this, uh, let, let's turn there. Man, I was reading it this morning and it just stirred my heart. Isaiah 66, listen to this amazing thing that the Lord says. Isaiah 66, verse one. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? He's he's speaking to the Jewish people. He's saying, listen, you can't build something big enough for me. God appreciated the heart of David and Solomon to prepare something for him. But Solomon, he told, listen, the highest heavens cannot contain me. You're not going to build a... I understand your, your frail but appreciated attempts at trying to house me. And I will honor that and I will fill that temple with a drop of my glory to the point where you won't be able to function. But realize, you can't contain me. And he's reiterating this same idea. And then he says... Verse two, has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. And then he says this, listen to this. This needs to stir your heart this morning. These are the ones I look on with favor. The King James Version says, this is the one that I esteem. Just stop there for a second. The creator of the universe The one of whom it is said spans the cosmos with a stretch of one hand. God who holds all things together by the power of his word. Esteems one of his created beings. Those of us who at one time walked as enemies of him, but we've caught his attention. And God says, there is a certain type of man or woman that I esteem. I don't know about you, but that, that undoes me. That I can live in such a way that God will esteem me. David cried out in Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man you would visit him? Like, God, who are we that you would give us the time of day? But God, in the authority of his word, says right here, there's a certain kind of person that I esteem. There's a certain one that has my attention. I believe it's the NIV. I've usually been preaching out of the ESV, but I'm preaching out of the NIV this morning. These are the ones I look on with favor. The, the, the Hebrew word there, it means that I, I hold in high regard, that I will protect, watch over. They'll always have my attention. Do I have your attention? I don't know about you, but man, that makes me hungry. That he gives me what I can do right here, and I can capture his attention. And he promises, if I will live up to this, he will watch over me protect me. I'll walk in his favor. What an amazing invitation. 
You're like, okay, pastor, get on with it. What is it? Trying to provoke some hunger here this morning. Here it is. Those who are humble and contrite in heart. That humility, it, it, it really, it, it even re- referred, it, it's often used as somebody in a poverty situation. It's that we're not high and exalted in our own eyes. There's this humility. There needs to be that dynamic in our life where, and, and this, I'm telling you, this is one of the reasons we need to come together and worship and get where his presence will fill this place. Because when his presence comes, there's something that happens in us. And if it doesn't happen in you, there needs to be a fear in your heart. That when he comes in the room, there's something that breaks down in us. And we're broken again and we're humbled and we're like, oh Lord, that you would give us the time of day. I'll never forget back in 1983 when I just got saved. I was, I know I talk about this all the time, but... When I got saved, I was so broken. I had just come off the streets. I was a homeless alcoholic. And I went into Teen Challenge, and I'll never forget, we were in a service one night. I didn't know who all these people were. I didn't know who Jack Hayford was. He was the guest speaker that night. It was the, there was the uh, what was it called? The uh, Pentecostal Fellowship for North America. And it was this gathering of all these Pentecostal leaders. And here I am, man, I'm barely saved. I'm an 18-year-old kid, all messed up. I'm sitting up in the balcony. They gave Teen Challenge special seating. And I remember two things about that service. I was struck by all the white heads, like three or four rows on both sides. And it struck me that all the leaders had white hair. If you have white hair, say amen. Amen. Hallelujah. I earned this. And so I was struck by that, and we were in worship. And I remember all of a sudden there was a tongues and interpretation. We're in, in the, you know, the high praise, and all of a sudden there was like a lull. You know, you've been there as Pentecostals. There's this lull, and all of a sudden this tongues and this interpretation, and something about it struck me like it hadn't in a long time. I was raised in churches that that, that was fairly common. And I had become callous to it. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, the idea of a calloused heart. Callousness is contact that creates, ongoing familiarity that creates an insensitivity. That's the definition of a, of a callous. You can have ongoing contact with the Spirit of God so that you become so familiar that you lose sensitivity to Him. And what we need is we need those things softened again. We need to be soaked in his presence so that we're sensitive to what he's doing. And I remember that tongues and interpretation, and I'd heard those things so many times I couldn't count on one hand. On, on, you know, I, I, there's no way I could have counted how many times I've been in that environment. But all of a sudden, I realized the, the ruler of the universe took out time from running everything to step into our little meeting and speak to us. And the fear of God just came over me, and I thought, oh, God. Make me right with you. And I'm telling you, God speaks to us all the time. We don't need to wait for a prophetic word. We have his book. But do you tremble at his word? 
He said they're humble, they're contrite. There's a, there's a sense, that, that word contrite means they're broken. God will take you through things because he loves you and break you. I needed to be broken. I'll, uh, I remember after our, our children, Kathy and I's kids, or, or second, we had, we had three children in 1981. Evan was born in February and the twins were born in November. Evan was eight and a half months. I'll never forget when we're feeding my newborn and they do the ultrasound. She said, there's two heartbeats. I thought, there's gonna be one less in the room. I'm gonna, <laughs> I was shocked. And of course they were premature and we found out that they had cerebral palsy and I, I just remember the shock of that and our lives were altered from that moment on. And, and we all have those events, those circumstances where it changes us. And I, I remember about a year out from that, I recognized that something had changed in how I ministered to others. I wasn't so harsh and un, uh, uncaring. It, and it wasn't even that I didn't care. It's just, I had this, okay, I know, I'm, this is confession time. I had this thing that if I would encourage someone, they'll get prideful. Can you imagine trying to pastor with that in your head? Not gonna work. I had this thing that if I was encouraging to the Teen Challenge students, they're gonna get prideful. I thought I was God's little needle to punt, pop their balloons. And I did it out of, the, my heart was right because my head was wrong. My, my head, I, I had this misconception, but my, I did it for the right reasons. I just had some misconceptions up here. That's the way I'd say it. And through that circumstance with our kids, God did something in me. And I remember I sat down with a guy one day and I asked him how he's doing. He cussed me out. This was a Teen Challenge student. Didn't cuss me out, but he cussed to me. And before that, I would have rebuked him, maybe even disciplined him. I know, that's, that's just where I was at. I was young and ignorant. And I remember sitting down with him and just putting my arm around him and just talking to him and just trying to encourage. I said, hey, I've been there. feel the same way sometimes. And I remember I was struck. I thought, man, something's different in me. It's probably what people mean when they say, never trust a man who doesn't have a limp. You gotta go through some things so you can really feel for others. That's what that word contrite means. That there's, a, there's a, a limp in your life. And it's not that God does those things because he's mad at us. He just knows without a limp, I know what it took me. When I was running my own life, and he had to put a limp in me, at least so I, took, you know, I couldn't outrun him anymore. <laughs> But then it says, they tremble at his word. Do you tremble at his word? And I guess we'd sum it up like this. There's supernatural communication that happens. God does all these things. But his primary communication, that could only get them so far. They needed to go to someone who knew the word. And the tragedy was, the ones who knew the word so well, they knew just where to send them, didn't care to go themselves. Do you tremble at his word? God wants to do a work in your life. So we're, there, there's something about getting a relationship with the Bible, where he steps through it. 
and he says something, and, and you know this is the word of God that the creator of the universe left in print a book so that I could know his thoughts. And when I read something that confronts me, there needs to be a shiver that goes through me. And I realize, God, you've got to help me come in alignment with your word. That it encourages me, it corrects me, that I tremble at his word. And if you don't find yourself being broken down over his word, that when you study it, it brings you to tears, then ask him to make you humble and contrite so you can tremble at his word. Because there's a type of person the Lord, the God of the universe, esteems. And it's not the great and the mighty and the strong and the wise. It's the humble and contrite who tremble at his word. There was something about these magi that were willing to up their entire life. To interrupt their entire life because they thought we just maybe can find the Jewish Messiah. And I would propose to you that's what made them wise. It's not all their learning. But the, James puts it this way. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. It's this thing that says, God, I want heart purity in the New Testament and really in the Old Testament. All through scripture is not about, it's not as much about sinlessness as it is about singular focus. I'm after one thing. And as I'm after this one thing, everything else falls, down, falls aside. It's not, that's why the Christian life is not so much about saying no to sin as much as it is saying yes to Jesus. And if you'll get a strong yes, your no will just happen. But if you focus on trying to have a strong no, good luck with that. Been there, done that, didn't work. So this heart purity, this singular focus, this thing that these magi, these pagans who worship foreign gods... But they knew somewhere down in their history there was a man named Daniel, an infamous magi, and this man knew God, and he had spoken of a coming Messiah. And something within them said, if it's true, if it's happening now, I will give everything. I will upend my entire life and walk the earth to find this one and worship an infant child. And that's what God wants to put in us. I'm going to ask you to stand. I want us to ask the Lord, God, make us those that you esteem, that you, we tremble at your word. Sometimes I get familiar with the things of God. As your pastor, my vocation is handling holy things. I don't want that. I want, to, I want to handle holy things. I don't want to become familiar with it. I don't ever want it to become, oh, you know, been there, done that. I want the same for you. Yeah, that's my cry. Papa. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you, God, for this wonderful group of people. Lord, I thank you that you consider we are but dust. We're here today and gone tomorrow. 
We have this fleeting breath called life to glorify you with, to discover you. Lord, I'm asking God that you would, in this coming year, put a hunger within us to seek you. And Lord, that we would tremble at your word. Hallelujah. Before I let you go this morning, I do want to give you an opportunity. If you're here, you might be someone who wandered or you might be someone who's never found him. I'm telling you, the, the Jewish Messiah that was born and we celebrate at Christmas, he's the secret to life. And if that's you this morning, if you need to come to Jesus, it might be the first time, it might be something you've done before and you've wandered and you're saying, and let me just tell you, it's not about you committing your life to him. It's as you acknowledging his commitment to you and saying, Jesus, do a work in me. And if that's you this morning and you're saying, man, I want to get right with the Lord. I want you just to raise your hand. We want to pray with you this morning. I want to give you an opportunity. I wouldn't want to close the service. Yeah. Anybody else? Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Lord, do a work in us. And Lord, in the busyness of this season, help us to remember what you did. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.